Well, if you have your Bibles, we're in Galatians chapter 4 today. We're taking the first seven verses. Um, so I mentioned last week, I, I shipped my Bible off to, to be re-leathered. And so this is the first time I have preached a sermon out of a different Bible for like the past 13 years. And so there's a 30-day turnaround. I got to make it 30 days. Uh, without my Bible, my security blanket, because that particular Bible, that I, I went to, I was telling Joseph earlier, I went to the UPS store twice this week. Once I went to mail it, and I literally couldn't do it. I froze up and I went home. <laughs> and I went back later in the week and, and, and tried again and was successful. I was just like, oh, will I see it again? Are you okay, buddy? Uh, it's like, I, I, yeah, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm not, I feel kind of naked up here without that Bible. So uh, hopefully it's, let's see, by this Thursday, not that I'm tracking it or anything, it'll be in the hands of that uh, person to rebind it, re-leather it, and I'll have it back in 30 days. Meanwhile, I thought I'd preach out of a different Bible every single Sunday, and maybe promo a Bible. So this is the Reformation Study Bible. Uh, it's by Ligonier Ministries. It's one that I picked up at a Ligonier conference, actually, uh, years ago. And it has some great notes in it and stuff. And I've done some Bible studies in, in it like that. So if you'd like to check it out, uh, uh, feel free to come up and, and uh, look through it. Uh, it's not important to me like the other Bible is. So, you know, something happens to this one. Well, okay. So that's what I'll be preaching out of today. It should equal uh, your ESV translation if that's what you're using. But we use all sorts of different translations here. I thought next week I'd even go back to my... Uh, NIV Bible that I preached the first uh, 10 years or so of ministry that I got my, for my high school graduation. So maybe I'll use that next week. All right, anyway, we are in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to take verses 1 through 7 today. I have been so encouraged preaching through the book of Galatians. We are in our 11th week of the book of Galatians. But the reason I'm so encouraged is because it seems like, for whatever reason, you all are locked in to this book of the Bible. And I really mean that. I've received feedback in so many different ways. Um, some of you uh, come up to me, and often I'll give a homework text when I preach, and somebody will come up later in the week or shoot me a message saying, hey, thanks for the homework text. Like, when, something so little like that, I'm just like, ah, it's just like, it feels so good uh, when people are diving into the Word and, and, and actually getting something out of that and taking some ownership out, uh, on that study. And I've had some of you even contact me to say you've gotten uh, a commentary over the book of Galatians to read through as I teach through it. I, I love it when stuff like that happens. I've had people contact me to say that they've actually changed what they believe because they've been corrected by some of Paul's teaching in the book of Galatians. Like that right there, I'm like, wow. That's, that's why we go into the Bible, to be changed, to be edified, because we don't have it all figured out. No matter how long we've been reading the Bible, there's always more to learn, there's more to repent of, there's more to, to change how we think about. And so uh, that, it's just been a season where I've gotten a lot of that type of feedback. I've even had people contact me to say they've been especially convicted of a certain sin in their life that they feel Galatians has, um, you know, talked to them about, right? Like, God's just used those passages of Scripture to, to convict them. And again, when I hear that, I'm just like, wow, what, a, what an honor it is to uh, be able to witness that as a pastor. Because that doesn't always happen. That doesn't always happen. Like, when it comes to preaching, to being a preacher, I can preach my heart out, and I try to every time. But... I can't control when the fruit happens. That's just the reality. 
I can preach and preach and preach, and, and sometimes the fruit happens and sometimes it doesn't. Paul actually says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. He says, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives growth. I mean, so I, I, I believe that we are in a season at the journey where God is giving us growth. I don't, I don't mean numerically, and that's not what Paul was talking about. He was talking about spiritually, spiritual growth. I, I do believe that our church right now is in a season of spiritual growth, and I'm, I'm so, so thankful for it. Um, so it, it has me excited to preach. It has me excited to, to write another sermon because there's a part of me that's becoming really, every week I, I feel like I'm becoming a little more optimistic, and you know I'm a pessimist. I am so pessimistic normally all of the time, but right now I have a, a sense of optimism. And a lot of that is because of what I, I sense happening in our church through this, uh, this teaching series. So we're going to jump back in here to Galatians, and well, hey, we'll see what happens next, right? Um, like I said, we're in chapter 4, the first seven verses here, and here's what Paul just told, him, told us at the end of chapter 3. He told us three profound truths. Three things that we need to identify as, as Christians. If you are in Christ, you are one, you are sons of God. Two, you are one with every other Christian on the planet. And every other Christian that ever was and will be. And three, you are heirs according to the promise. So those are three amazing truths. So when you think about your Christian faith, you need to think of it in those three ways that we learned last week. You're a son of God, as in Jesus is the son of God. He has the love of the Father, and when we are in Christ, we have the love of the Father. That's a profound truth. That should change how you think about things. You are one with every other Christian who ever was, because God's kingdom doesn't work like this earthly kingdom that we live in does. Here we live in a reality where your race, your, you know, your, your gender, your social status, that will have a, a great impact on where you, the experience that you have in this world. It just does, whether you like it or not or want to admit it or not. But in the kingdom of God, when you are in Christ, you are one with every other Christian who ever was, who is, and who ever will be. You are one, you are equals with all of them in Christ. That's how his kingdom works. And also, you are an heir according to a promise. And we're talking about a, a specific promise. A promise that you learn about just 12 chapters, just 15 chapters rather, into the Bible. You get into the book of Genesis, and we've studied this several times now in Galatians. This promise that God made to Abraham to, to redeem for himself a people through the descendants of Abraham and his offspring. That's singular. Remember, we studied that just a couple weeks ago as well. So we are heirs to this promise. This old, the Old Testament matters. We can't ever get rid of the Old Testament or the New Testament won't make any sense. The Old Testament, we have these promises that we learn about. We see how things work in this world. And that promise to Abraham is being fulfilled even today as we put our faith in Christ. We are literally uh, in the, numbered in the stars that he promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. So those, those three truths, that's a lot to take in. I mean, we could rehash and dive deeper into those three truths for a whole nother Sunday. That's not what I'm going to do, and that's not what Paul does next. What Paul does next is he summarizes everything. Everything's 
uh, it's a lot to take in, and it's critical to Paul that they understand just what he's saying. And so these first seven verses of chapter 4, he's kind of saying, let me summarize it in a different way. Let me, let me kind of lump this all together and give you an analogy so that you can see just the, the magnitude of what the gospel has done for you and, and, and how it has changed your status before God. So he has a, a teaching analogy, which is really helpful, and then he builds on that. And, and the analogy is simply this. It's this picture that we're given of a slave who becomes a son. The, the distinctions between the status of a slave and a son is being utilized by Paul, a, a free son and a, and a slave, so that we can understand our status change before God in Christ. That's what's happening. He's giving us a snapshot, a picture to look at. That's helpful. I love it when Paul does this in the New Testament because sometimes Paul is really confusing. Sometimes he's hard to understand. And so he gives us these pictures every once in a while so that we can, we can glance at it. And when we glance at this picture that he gives, gives us today, we see a snapshot of redemptive history, of, of Israel becoming, uh, receiving this inheritance, this promise from God that he made to Abraham long ago. And here's why I think that is so valuable. We get to see the gospel unfold in the lives of, of God's people in a nutshell. And when you and I look at that picture, we get a picture, a snapshot, of how salvation worked out in our lives and how it works out in the lives of others around us. We look at this picture and we get, here's how we're saved in a nutshell. This is the gospel. I love those moments in scripture when it's just boiled down and we get to look at a picture and understand something. That's these seven verses. I'm going to help walk you through it because it is a little wordy and difficult to translate into English, which offers a lot of problems, but we're going to get through this. Here's the last thing he said, though, in chapter 3. If you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we're we're looking at an analogy about what that means. Look at the first two verses in chapter 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You are heirs according to the promise. Now let me tell you something about heirs. You know how heirs work, right? That's Paul's approach. That's how he's approaching them right now. You know, the life of an heir works like this. They don't really have anything until they've officially inherited it, right? Up until the point in which, if you're, if you're a son uh, of um, a family farm or something like that, you're going to work on that farm, be an employee of that farm, just like a slave would be working on that farm or being an, being an employee of that farm. You're going to you're going to work there until you actually inherit the farm. So before you inherit it, you're really no better off than the slave. This is the analogy that he's building, right? It, that, that heir is going to work the farm. Though technically he does own everything, he really doesn't yet. He hasn't inherited it yet. I was watching a dateline this week about an heir. Um, this is when school gets back in uh, session. I have this like Amanda goes to sleep early and I watch Dateline. It's just like this thing that I do. It's my guilty pleasure. And I was watching about an heir 
Uh, and you know, if he's on Dateline, you know where this is going, right? He was an heir to this massive walnut farm in Texas. And if you've ever bought a bag of walnuts, you know they are millionaires because <laughs> walnuts are so expensive. And this guy is waiting to inherit this massive walnut farm that has been in his family for generation after generation. But his mom just won't die. <laughs> you know where this is going, right? He's old now. He's worked that farm his whole life. He wants to retire, but his mom is still alive. He doesn't actually have that money yet, and he's getting really, really impatient because he's really no better off than any other employee that's working on that walnut farm. He's just received a paycheck like them his entire life, but he really hasn't owned everything yet. He hasn't gotten it, and he got impatient, and you know how the story goes because you've watched Dateline before, right? But it, you know, the, the story of God's people in the Bible, Israel was this heir, these people. They were an heir to this promise, but they haven't received the inheritance yet. They were waiting for it. They were working the land, they were being God's people, they were following the law, and they were waiting for the one day in which they would inherit this promise, that this promise would come to fruition. But they had to wait for God's timing. And you and I know how difficult it is to wait on God's timing a lot of times, right? Every single one of you have been in a situation in your life in which you're waiting on the timing of God, and you just can't figure it out. You're growing impatient with it. We've all been there. Well, Israel was there for centuries and centuries, waiting for this promise. And it was going to come at just the right time set by the Father. Because when you're an heir of the promise, you don't get to control the time. You don't get to control when you inherit it. You have to wait. Here's why Paul's setting it up like this. Look at verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul's connecting us now to the, to the analogy. He's connecting us. Like, we were enslaved to this world. We were under the law. We were waiting on God, too. All of us have been in this period of time in which we are just living in this sinful world according to the elementary principles of the world and, and experiencing our own fallen and brokenness in the midst of a world that has fallen and broken, waiting on God to do something. Well, the slaves and the heirs in this analogy, they're both waiting on God and they're both living under the law. But then God did do something. He did do something and it was the date set by the Father. It did, it did come to pass. Look at verses 4 and 5. Here's what happens. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So timing is everything. God's people had to wait on God's timing. I, uh, so last week I was at a cross-country meet watching Emmett run, and I was running all over that place. If you are the parent of a kid that's ever run cross-country, you know that every time you go to a meet, you run a cross-country meet too. I was all over Broughton, uh, Broughton's during that meet. I was parking cars for a couple hours. I'm talking to everybody, taking money, and then, then you know, swapping out with other parents so I can watch the race, and then I'm showing people around. I'm walking all over that place. I feel like I ran that track twice before Emmett even started his race. So we're there all morning long, and they start to pass out the awards, and they, they, or they, they get done passing out the awards. It's all over. Everybody finally turns and goes to their car, and then it hit me. 
I don't have my keys. They're not in my pocket. I'm, check, I'm, I'm doing this business right here. I'm just like, and, and, and as I'm doing this, I start to get the look from Amanda. You know, the look like, you big dumb animal, you lost the keys, didn't you? Right? Like, like we've all gotten that look from our wives. And I'm looking around there, and I'm like, oh, no, where do I even start? I, I'm, this is all unraveling in like five seconds. Where do I even start? Do I go on a trail? Do I go and start to look in the woods? Do I go to the parking lot? Where in the world are my keys? And in, at just the right time, it just, a voice came from the heavens over the loudspeaker and said, somebody lost their keys and we have them up here at the award table. It was perfect timing. I really only got to panic for like a full five seconds. And it was awful. Uh, my heart just sank there for a moment. And then salvation, uh, just the right time. I ran over to that award table and I was like, I don't even, those are my keys. I guarantee it. And I, I, evidently, I, when I had the money bag on, I thought I put my keys in my pocket, but I put them in the money bag and then gave them the money bag. So that's how that went down. But that timing, we were laughing the rest of the day at just how, how perfect that timing was because uh, we, you know, we were having this nervous breakdown for five seconds. Where are my keys? And then boom, there they are. Like it's, it's great when things work out like that, right? It's, it's great when timing works out. When you look at the timing of God in the Bible, though, to say that it works out perfectly is such an understatement. When you look at the timing of the coming of Christ in his life, when it happened in human history, like God's timing is impeccable. I, I don't even want to pretend to act like I can explain God's timing to you because that's way over my head. I couldn't begin to do that. But there are things that we can look at to at least appreciate God's timing. You ever notice that? What, what do we say? Hindsight's 2020. Something goes down in our life and we're impatient when, it, when we're uh, thinking about God and what we want him to do for us, right? But then it's oftentimes that after a lot of time goes by, you can look into the past and see, oh, that's why God did it like that. It makes perfect sense now. You've all had situations like that in your life. And when you look at salvation, when you look at how it unfolds, the gospel itself, how it unfolds in the history of humanity, it's perfect timing. When you just look at, at the, the history of the Jews, where they were at in history, it was perfect. It was the perfect time to send a Messiah. They were in a time in their history in which they were monotheistic. They were totally focused on the worship of Yahweh. And you think, well, weren't they always that way? Well, if you've read the Bible, you know that they weren't. There were many times in Israel's history in which they backslid in the polytheism. They would be influenced by other pagan cultures and false gods, and they would adopt those gods and worship them alongside Yahweh or just worship them and exclude Yahweh. It, it would happen routinely as they were in exile or back from exile or different things going on throughout Israel's history. But yet when Jesus came, they were finally at this point in which they had basically repented of any and all overt idolatry. They were focused on Yahweh worship, the way it was supposed to be, the way they knew it was supposed to be all along. They had repented of that, and they were in a time in which it was perfect for Jesus to show up as the Messiah. Had he showed up in any of those other times, you wonder if they would have noticed him at all. Another observation that I wanted to point out to you, like when you look at the timing of God, by the time Jesus showed up, there were synagogues everywhere. When you're reading in the New Testament, you see synagogues mentioned all, all, all over the place and rulers of the synagogue and things like that. That was a unique time in Jewish history. 
You'll notice when you go to the Old Testament, you don't see a lot of synagogues going on. When you look at the Old Testament worship, they were gathering at the tabernacle, or they would gather at the temple, and that was where they offered sacrifices to God and worshiped Yahweh. But when they went into exile for the last time, Israel did something they had never done before. They started to make synagogues. The temple was destroyed, and they were scattered, scattered everywhere, so Jews were like, well, let's do something that we can continue to worship without the temple. So they started to build synagogues, local places they could go to, to worship together. And then after the, the temple was rebuilt, and, and, and they started to thrive again in Israel, they kept those synagogues. And so you would have your local synagogue, and then you would make your... Uh, uh, trip to the, to the temple, to the different festivals and things like that. That's unique. That's a perfect time for Jesus to show up. Because when he showed up, he utilized all of those synagogues to preach the gospel. They were, they were buildings that facilitated the preaching of the gospel, that Jesus was bringing them. And then after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, his apostles utilized those synagogues. It was just the perfect timing to have those. And it was the perfect timing for the gospel to unfold. God's timing is it's impeccable. And another thing, by the time Jesus showed up, they had a completed Old Testament canon. Like, we, we take that for granted, but the Jews didn't always have that. You know, for a, for a long time in their history, they just had the Pentateuch, the first five books. Penta is five, took is scrolls, five scrolls. They, they just had the first five books of the Bible. But then as, as, the, as the story of God's people went on, there was more canonized scriptures by many of the prophets and so on and so forth. By the time Jesus was there, they had a canonized Old Testament that they could utilize to discern and validate that Jesus was, in fact, God's Messiah. It was the perfect time. It was, it was the perfect time in the sense of language, too. In a, in a unique moment in, Ameri in uh, American history, no, when America wasn't around, in world history, all of the known world basically spoke Greek, thanks to Alexander the Great. And so the New Testament was written in Greek, and they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament by the time Jesus was there, called the Septuagint. And between the two, that circulated and allowed the gospel to spread and be confirmed by Old Testament passages and so on and so forth. It was the perfect time for the Messiah to show up. And last but not least, this one observation I'll mention to you, just the fact that they had roads. When Rome took over, they built roads everywhere, all over the place. And the tyranny of Rome provided security and roads. And so as the gospel began to spread, those roads and that tyranny of Rome actually provided security in some sense to start to spread and mobilize Christians to take the gospel everywhere to all nations. It was the perfect timing. So we get frustrated with God's timing all of the time. But just like in, in, the, Israel, in the history of Israel, we can look back into their past and just see how perfect it was. So we can trust God right now in the timing of our lives, right? You have situations in your life that you just don't understand the timing. You don't understand what God's doing or where he's at. I've been there so many times as well. I'm just like you. But we go to scripture and learn these truths and learn about his perfect timing so that we can trust God in the midst of frustrating timing, right? His timing was just perfect. In the fullness of time, God sent his son to do two things. To re and we just read it. 
to redeem those who were under the law, that is, he removed the curse of the law by becoming a curse, his atoning death, right? That's how he redeemed God's people. But that's only half the gospel. The other half of the gospel that you need if you want a full understanding of the gospel is that he not only redeemed you, he also provided the credentials that you could come, you become uh, adopted as sons. You have the full rights and benefits and privileges of sonship. You are heirs according to the promise. So a lot of people see the Christian faith and they say, oh man, what Jesus did, it gave us a clean slate. That's only half the gospel. Yes, he did that, but that's not the whole gospel. He gave you a clean slate, and then he wrote his righteousness on that slate. That's the whole gospel. His righteousness is our righteousness. His works are what make us justified before God. He gave us his clean slate, and he put his works on that clean slate, and that's how you are seen as a son, a son of the Father. You are adopted as sons due to what Christ has done. Paul chose that word adoption because it was a legal term. And it was so important and so helpful in understanding what it means to be saved. So when you and I think about adoption, we typically think of a cute little baby uh, who's put up for adoption, or we think of a, a foster child who is taken in by a family and eventually adopted. Those are the first thoughts that come to our mind whenever we think of adoption in our day and in our time. That's not what would have come to mind first back in Greco-Roman culture. They would have thought about a slave becoming a son. They would have thought about a slave being adopted into a family. And so if I was a wealthy Roman citizen back then and I wasn't able to have kids, I would choose one of my slaves to adopt to be the heir of my estate, to be the heir of all that I have. And when I would adopt that slave as my son, that would mean that they have all of the rights, all of the benefits, all of the privileges of being my son as if they were my son in the first place all along. So you think of, think of the drastic change in status that just happened when they think of what they thought of. Just a sudden, dramatic, and permanent change in status. Adoption is the perfect metaphor for us to have in our minds when we think of who we are in relationship to God. It's like a slave moving to a son because of Jesus. Faith in the gospel of Jesus, is, it's a sudden, dramatic, permanent change like this before God, our creator. Look at verses 6 and 7. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Don't miss what Paul's trying to tell them and what he's trying to tell us right now. Being a son, being an heir according to the promise, Numbered among the stars promised to Abraham, right? If, if that is you, if you are in Christ, then the spirit of his son is in you. When you acknowledge that, it's because God has sent his spirit into your hearts to cry out to God. To cry out, Abba, Father, this intimate relationship. 
That's, that's how God's promise played out in Israel's history. That's how the gospel played out in Paul's time as he's preaching the gospel. The Spirit of God would indwell the hearts and minds of the people who hear the gospel, and they would begin to cry out to God and identify as heirs according to the promise. The same thing happens to us today. This is the same gospel that, that saved people back then. It's still happening exactly the same way today. I preach my heart out, and we, we preach about the gospel, but we don't control that fruit. At some point in time, God, in the fullness of time, sends his spirit into the hearts of his people, and they begin to cry out to him. And one of the greatest privileges as a preacher is when you get to witness this happening to people. You know, I've pastored in this area for 18 years now, just teaching people about God every week for 18 years since I was 25. I moved to this area when I was 25 years old. And I've been doing just planting and watering, hoping for growth. But I don't control the growth. That's, that's what God does. And at times, whenever you're doing ministry, a lot of times it feels like a lot of planting and a lot of watering, and that's it. That's all it feels like. And if you've planted a garden and you go out and look at it every day and nothing's happening, you know a little bit about what that feels like, right? But a lot of times, I feel like years can go by where you're just planting and watering. You're just working the field and nothing's happening. Because you can plant and you can water all you want, but if God doesn't cause the growth, you're not going to see any growth regardless of what you're doing. So I think the reason that can happen so often, especially in our culture and in our, in our time, it's because people in our culture, in our time, they're really good at playing church. They're just really good at it. And it's comfortable. It's familiar. A lot of people, a lot of people in our society, they can tell you about God. They can tell you about church. They can tell you about the Bible. But they're really not passionate about any of those things. Maybe because they backslid or they're just not really sons of God. It's just something that's socially acceptable to do in our time and in our culture. And so they do it. They loosely associate with the church, but there's really no intimate relationship there with God on any level. We have plenty of people in our culture that are familiar with God, but just familiar in the sense that he's like a decoration in their home. They like to, they, they like to observe the decoration. They like to learn about the decoration. You know, they, they like to maybe even admire God like a zoo animal. You know, look how pretty it is. Look how amazing it is. Look what it can do. Wow. And we, we like to learn about God like we like to learn about animals at the zoo. And that's socially acceptable to do in our culture. And, and then we fool ourselves into thinking that this is really any sort of intimate relationship at all. Like it, it's, a lot of people consider themselves to be believers, but there's really no fruit to really see that or prove that that's the case. But when God sends his spirit into his people, his actual people, they have the spirit of a son, and they cry out to him. They depend on him. They are aware of God like a son is aware of their good father. That is a major resource in my life. That is the resource. Did you notice how, how the crying out to God is described? Abba, father. That, does that sound familiar? He's teaching us, here's how Christians cry out to God. Why would he phrase it like that? Abba, Father, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus, nobody cried out to God like that before Jesus. Jesus revolutionized this. and We think of, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he was arrested. 
He cried out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. There's this moment in which Jesus, frustrated with the circumstances in his life, not understanding the timing of the Father, stressed to the point of sweating blood, yet he's depending on God because he's in actual relationship with the Father as the Son of God. That's the spirit we are given as his children, and that's how we are to live out our lives, and that's why we cry out to him in that way. Jesus, you know, when it came to his relationship with the Father, God wasn't just something over there that he admired. God wasn't just a a decoration. To Jesus, the Father wasn't just like someone he was a fan of. He had a functional father-son relationship. And so what about us? What about us right now? And I know that's difficult for many of us to think of because maybe you have a dysfunctional relationship with your dad or don't have a relationship with your dad. Everybody has daddy issues, right? And so we we let that get in the way, but when we think of the ideal father-son relationship, we know how it's supposed to work at least. And that's why you know your relationship was dysfunctional. But do you have that sort of relationship with your father in heaven? If you really identify as the sons of God, are you depending on him as if a good son would, defend, would depend on his good father? Or are you just a fan of the stuff? Are you, are you just in Christianity for the music and t-shirts? T-shirts are really dorky. You shouldn't be in it for that at all. But, you know, a lot of people, I just feel like they're in, they're in Christianity and they're in the word of God for a little pick-me-up. They like those verses that you can pluck out of context and put on a magnet and have the beautiful scenery in the background and put on their fridge, and that makes them feel good. And that's what it's about. Post it on social media and try to make others feel good too. If God is that decoration in your life, then God is not uh, alive in your life. If, if, God, if the word of God is just a quick pick-me-up for you, then it's not something that truly edifies you. It's not something that you truly submit to. It's probably that you just like to use that decoration and use that pick-me-up as a means of just making your little kingdom just the way you want it, rather than being a part of the actual kingdom of God that Christ has redeemed. So witnessing people get this is the biggest privilege of a preacher. Like when I see someone move from a cultural Christian to an actual son of God, which they're actually depending on God to navigate this broken world. And, I, and you really start to see the fruit of that. Wow, it's amazing. It's one of the benefits of being in one area for so long. I get to watch people grow up and old youth kids coming back around and, and things like that. You just never know when the lights are going to come on. But whenever you do witness that, though, whenever you see that happen in someone's life, it's nothing less than, a, than like a slave moving to son status being a slave of the world to a son of God. That happens in our faith in Christ. And so I want to invite you this morning to cry out to God. How do we cry out to God? Well, we don't do that in the form of an altar call here at The Journey because the altar call, when you look at church history, is just this quick little fad that happened the last century. Christians never did that before then. Billy Graham made that really famous, but you know what? We cry out to God in the, in the way Christians have always cried out to God. We take communion. We meet together on the first day of the week, and we take communion together. And we remember the, the miracle 
of our redemption in Christ. And we take that bread to remember that those are the, the credentials given to me from Christ to, see, to be seen as one of the sons of God. I, I take the Jews to remember the blood shed on the cross that, that redeemed me under the curse of the law. Jesus became the curse for me. And so all of my sins are washed away and I'm given the credentials of Jesus. When I stand before God, therefore, I am completely right with him. I don't look at the, the credentials in my life I don't look at my race, gender, or social status. I don't look at my accomplishments, and I don't look at my failures. When we cry out to God, we're crying out fully dependent upon him and what he's done through his son to save us. Do that. Cry out in that sense. It's all about God, and this is how we express that. It's in a time of communion. So let's pray, and let's do that together today. Lord, we thank you so much for this, this quick analogy that Paul gives us in the book of Galatians. But I pray that um, we would see ourselves through the lens of the gospel this morning as we take communion. Lord, we so often backslide into thinking that we have to be good enough to be loved by you. We, we have to accomplish the right things or have the right labels or be the, just the right type of person and then maybe you'll like us. I'm so thankful that your word corrects us of all of that. And Lord, sometimes we get so caught up in who we are that we develop a superiority complex and we think we're better than others and we think that we, we, we develop this false sense of security that because of who we are, you must love us. Lord, wherever we fall on that spectrum here this morning, I pray that you would just grant us repentance. Lord, under the law, you know, there's no difference between the heir and the slave. Lord, all of us have fallen short. And so, Father, help us to press into our relationship with your son so that we can know who we are and where we stand before you and that we can live out our lives in true worship, in spirit, and in truth. I pray that that would be the case for us here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.